0: Good morning. Grab a Bible or turn on your app to uh, Luke chapter 24. One of um, the young ladies who used to go to our church, Audra Crumweed, she uh, moved to Arizona and last week came and visited and asked Pastor Ron if we were still in the gospel of Luke. (laughs) 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 Yes, we are. (laughs) July 2017, so we're almost done. Um, but we are getting close to the end of the Gospel of Luke. And so it would be helpful if you followed along in Luke chapter 24. And we're, this morning, going to take a look at the first 12 verses. All right, well, hopefully you're in Luke 24. And I just want to ask um, us to to read this passage, to follow along and see what God has for us this morning. So we're in Luke chapter 24. Verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, uh, just in giving us your word, that we have access to the Bible. Not only that, we have access to multiple versions of the Bible in English. We have study helps. We have studied Bibles, we have apps on our phones, Lord, we have no end of resources to your word, so help us not to take those things for granted. We think of the thousands of people groups around the world who don't have the Bible in their own language yet, and pray for those missionaries who are working on that, that you would bless them and help them, so that people might be able to read your very words in their own heart language. Father, this morning we want to consider Christmas, and we want to consider Easter all in one Sunday. So help us, uh, help our hearts to be able to handle this. Lord, I pray that we would overflow with joy, that we would see uh, what you have for us in this passage. We thank you, Jesus, that right now you sit at the Father's right hand. You are preparing a place for us, so that one day when you come again, we might join you and be with you forever. In the meantime, give us the energy. Give us uh, the outpouring of your Spirit so that we might work hard for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from uh, World Magazine this week, uh, there's an article that I could not pass up as an opportunity to take a look at our passage this morning. And it starts uh, with this context. Beginning on Sunday, December 9th, the Chinese government cracked down on early reign Covenant Church in Chengdu, detaining more than 100 church leaders and members. Pastor Wang Yi and his wife have been charged with incitement to subvert state power, which could result in 5 to 15 years in prison. This persecution didn't come as a surprise to Pastor Wang or the 750-person church. Early rain has long pushed the boundaries of what it means to be an unregistered house church in China. Just imagine that, a 750-member house church. Wang has openly criticized the Chinese government's treatment of Christians and called out Chinese President Xi Jinping as a sinner whose government has, quote, sinned greatly against God for it is persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This September and October... Wong wrote a letter intended to be circulated to the public in the case of his arrest. On December 11th, Early Rain released Wong's letter titled, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. Here is the letter. On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to, and it is not the goal for which God has given his people, the gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ, the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest the fact that true hope and a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching, and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short, and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, and to testify to earthly, momentary lives about heavenly, eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that the communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant, John Calvin, said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people, the goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward Him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as those submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. But this does not mean that my personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is in any sense fighting for rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience because I do not have the intention of changing any institutions or laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by this faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. For the mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become a part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. This is why I am not interested in changing any political or legal institutions in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. Regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciences consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. For the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ and the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. If God decides to use the persecution of the communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus... If through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always good. Precisely because none of my words and actions are directed towards seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation, I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not to terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of the dark powers." Even though I am often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. It is what I've devoted all my energy to. It is the good news that I am spreading throughout China. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. If I am in prison for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and law enforcement. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom there is an authority higher than their authority and there is a freedom that they cannot restrain. A freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ." Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teaching is merely a lie and temptation of demons, I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty. Moreover, I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and the most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it is also a sin against all non-Christians. For the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth, there has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only eternal faith There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me and that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Pastor Wong is still in custody and that is a powerful Letter That speaks to someone who believes that there is something more going on in this world and that there is something more to be devoted to than merely one's own personal comfort and safety. What could make a man welcome separation from his family and his church and his job and his home? What could motivate any woman to be separated from her husband and her children be thrown into prison for something that we believe and practice? Well, I think that our passage today answers that question, or begins to answer that question. So if you'll look back down at Luke 24 with me, I want to take us through these first 12 verses and see what the Lord has for us, and also introduce us to what will be, not next Sunday, but the following two Sundays after that, the last two sermons in our series in the Gospel of Luke, because today really opens the door ha, to that. Point number one, Jesus' tomb was open and bodiless. Jesus' tomb was open and bodiless. Now that might seem kind of obvious, but perhaps you've not heard this story, or perhaps you haven't heard this story in a while. And it is important for us to note that Luke, the doctor who has written this gospel For our certain salvation, so that we might know what we believe and why we believe it. That he would include these details, not by accident, but on purpose. Would you please tell me what the first word of chapter 24 is? It's but. It's not and. It's not. Some of your versions may say now. But is the exact right word to use here. Just put your eyes to the verse before. Jesus has been buried in the tomb. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. On Shabbat, on Saturday, these good, pious Jews obeyed God's law and rested. Jesus is in the grave. He just was crucified. Pastor Ron walked us through the crucifixion. The Romans knew how to kill people. They were really, really good at it. The story appears to be over the hero is dead and buried. The very first word of chapter 24 gives us a glimmer of hope because it says, but it it asks us to say, wait, there's more? There's more? That's not the end? Now, many of us who have grown up in the church, uh, we know it's not the end. Yes, but if we can use our sanctified imaginations and take ourselves back to that time and imagine what it would have been like for the followers of Jesus we would understand why this word, but, is such an incredible word. Imagine the Gentiles receiving this gospel for the first time reading the story of Jesus and they get to the end and they go, wait, what? This is a downer? And they move on in the scroll and the next word is, but. But, this is not the end. There's more coming. I hate to be a spoiler, but the end of Batman versus Superman, if you haven't seen it, I'm just going to try to keep it as low-key as possible, is not the first time we've seen this. Okay? Batman versus Superman borrows from the gospel of Jesus Christ because it can't be better. Okay? There is some indication that this is not the end of the story. There is a sequel to come. But on the first day of the week, that's Sunday... At early dawn. Some of you don't know what that means. Some of you are very familiar with that. Okay. <laughs> Six o'clock comes twice a day. Okay. In the evening as well as in the morning. And this is the spring of the year, so it's probably around six-ish. Okay. Um, it's that time when the dark is fleeing, but the light has not yet come. And, and we find out that our, our characters here are described as they. Who are they? Well, we have to look back to figure out who they are. And they are the women who not only were at the tomb and saw Jesus buried and noted where the tomb was, but they also, if you'll go back to 2349, just go back a few, maybe a page, maybe less, in your Bible. Chapter 2349. Jesus has just... Died on the cross. He has committed his spirit into the hands of his father. And verse 49 says, And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 55 says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Luke is interested in eyewitnesses. All of, well, at least most of the disciples, we we find out from one of the gospels that John was at the cross. But the other ten are nowhere to be found. These brave men who would die for Jesus, who would stand up for him, are nowhere to be found. Who is there but these women who have come with him from Galilee, who have supported Jesus in his ministry. They courageously observe the crucifixion. And then they follow and courageously view the burial. They know exactly where Jesus' body has been laid because it was Passover and because... Sabbath was about to start. The body was not able to be prepared as well as it should have been. And so they took note and said, we can't do it on Saturday because it's the Sabbath, but on Sunday morning we're going to go finish the job. We're going to go take care of the body of Jesus. And so they come to the tomb on Sunday morning and they bring the spices that they have been preparing. Uh, Often the spices were not meant to embalm the body but really were a a deodorizer, (laughs) Um, really trying to help because it was going to stink as the body in the tomb deteriorated. They wanted to take care of uh, the body because the Jewish people had a respect for the body that was based on God creating us in His image. Notice the people, these women, have no expectation that they are going to find an empty tomb, that there will be any angels or any supernatural phenomena, they expect to find a dead, rotting body that they are going to attend to. This is their purpose. Verse 2, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Uh Uh-oh. There is no way of reading this that can help us to to get our minds around what it would have been like unless you have recently, and I say recently on purpose, unless you have recently buried a loved one. Imagine going to the cemetery and finding the spot where your loved one has been buried and there is a hole in the ground and a shovel next to it. Think of the emotions that would go through your mind, and your heart at that moment. Consider what that would be like for you. And also consider, you would not leap to, they're alive! Your mind would go, how dare they? Who did this? What happened? This is, I think, what we need to help ourselves see when we read this, to imagine what these women would have been seeing. They see the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, we are familiar with pictures of the tomb, but I want us just to briefly take a look at some examples of... Oh, man, can we kill the lights, please? Wow, that's hard to see. Um, Here is one of uh, a few... Um, tombs that have been preserved for us. The the stone is deteriorating, but can you see the the rolling stone there? The opening is really dark. Um, this is a good example of what this tomb was probably like. It was it was carved out of stone, as you can see there. Okay, and as a place, thank you, and as a place to uh, put the body, and be able to hide the body from tomb raiders, and also from the smells that would come out of this tomb. Can we go to the next picture? There's another, this is the same tomb with a view out um, from the inside. You can see this is a super well-built tomb because this is 2,000 years ago. This tomb is, is very well from the time of Jesus. It's in the country of Jordan now. Um, but you can see how well-built, how structurally uh, uh, good this place is. Let's go to the next picture. Um, here is uh, another a tomb w- with the rolling stone uh, viewed there. You can see how low the door is um, on this tomb so that you'd have to stoop to look in. I think we have one more. Here's a really, really uh, good picture. Well kept. Okay. You can see this. Let's go back real quick. Can you go back? There we go. Um, you can see a little bit of a slope so that the rolling stone has a little bit of momentum is a little harder to push out of the way and will seal that door. Go, uh, yeah, so go to the next picture. This is a picture Pastor Ron showed, I think, last week. And this would have been, um, what it would have looked like on the inside, very likely, that there would have been a carved spot, a bench carved out of the side to lay the body on. So that hopefully this helps to give you a visual of when, uh, the ladies walk into the tomb, what they, what they see when they go in. They're expecting to find a bench with a wrapped body uh, on it in order for them to attend to Jesus's body. Okay, hopefully that helps you. Um, Something else that we know is that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and so Jesus was laid in a a rich man's tomb. So most tombs didn't look like these. Okay? These are the really nice ones. Alright? These are the expensive tombs. Um, In the time of Jesus, most caves had a stone plug that was square, not round, and was shoved into uh, the the whole like a stopper. Um Rolling Stones are super rare. Around Jerusalem they found eight hundred and fifty tombs from the time of around Jesus. Only four of them have a round rolling stone. Okay. The other eight hundred and forty six have these plugs. This was a distinctive tomb, easy to find, okay, and very, very nice. We know that no one had ever been laid in it. It was a brand new tomb. These are important for us to remember because we can just kind of throw, uh, rolling stone, cross, tomb. Right, we got this. We know this. We hear it every Easter. Okay, but I want us to, to return to this passage understanding this. Verse 3, but when they went in, how would they? How would you have gone in, by the way? How would you have approached? You, you, you walk up and you see the stone rolled away. What kind of... Thoughts are in your mind. How are you feeling? How do you approach a tomb in which a dead body lies? Not only that, but the dead body of the one you thought had come to save you and your people. As they approach, they go in the tomb and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Notice, they did not find the body of Jesus, which is exactly what they expected. They're surprised. They're not a, a group of gullible, fanciful, ancient people just itching for some earth-shattering miracle. Okay? They know what death is. In fact, they're a lot more familiar with death than we are. They have a lot more interactions with death than we do. Don't, don't believe these myths about these ancient people who are just kind of mystical and they expect all these weird stories about death. They knew exactly what death was. They knew that the Romans knew what death was and how to kill someone. They expected a body. There is no body. Verse 4 transitions us into finding out what happened. And point number 2, God accomplishes his will and interprets his way. God accomplishes his will and interprets his way. There's angels here. Spoiler alert. Notice the parallel with the Christmas story. Nobody in the Christmas story knows what's happening or makes it up. Angels keep appearing like crazy to tell everyone what's happening. Right? No one knows what's going on, so God reveals what's going on through his messengers. Think about all the angelic appearances in the Christmas story. Joseph doesn't have an inkling, okay, that Mary's pregnant, (laughs) All right? Um, People don't have these ideas. Oh, maybe we'll do this. The angels tell them what to do and what God is going to do. In the same way, the, the women enter the tomb and they don't automatically know what to think. And so God, in his great kindness, tells them what happened. He accomplishes his will and he also interprets his way. God has given us his words so that we might know what to think about these things that have happened. He doesn't leave us to figure it out for ourselves. They're perplexed. Look at verse four. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. That that word is the word used for lightning. Okay, so this isn't just they had they had their best white clothes on. <laughs> okay, this is supernatural light. They stood by in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened, <laughs> no joke. <laughs> and bowed their faces to the ground. Why would they have done that? Fear, bright light. Okay, they don't know what else to do. This is the kind of thing you bow down at. (laughs) They know the Old Testament. Time to get on our faces. They want to know what happens, and God in his kindness provides. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? This comes across as kind of like a mild rebuke. Okay, and hear this, for, hear this for what it is. You don't go to a cemetery to find your friend. Don't tell me if you do, because we, that's weird, okay? But, <laughs> so where do you want to meet? Um, I don't know, cemetery? Okay, at midnight? No, don't do that. <laughs> the angels are saying, this is not the kind of place where you go to find a live person, right? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Which is funny too because they didn't know he was living. (laughs) They thought they were seeking the dead. The angels say, He is not here but has risen. Notice they don't say his body is not here, they say, He is not here. That's different. Okay? That's different. Think about a crime scene. Okay? Where's the body? Okay, we're talking about a body. That person has departed, they have died. This is not the same kind of language. He is not here. He is somewhere else, alive. That's the implication of these words. And then there's another rebuke to them, a gentle rebuke. In verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Don't you remember? Don't you remember when he said this? He told you this was going to happen. Notice, Jesus told them this explicitly, and they need to be reminded. They need to be reminded of what he had told them. This was important. The angels are telling them what they've already heard, but reminding them in light of the new information of an empty tomb, what is happening. Now, Jesus had told them that on the third day he would rise, and sometimes people bring this up as... um, Uh, some kind of objection to this story. Um, If Jesus died on Friday afternoon and they find the tomb empty on Sunday morning, I can do my math. That's not 72 hours. Okay, but that's fine. You don't have to do your math because you just need to understand that Jewish people at the time counted any part of a day as the day. And so Friday evening counts as day one. Saturday counts as day two. And Sunday morning, as brief as it was, counts as day three. Okay? They also began their days um, at sundown. Okay. Our days technically start at midnight, right? There's they're started at sundown. And so parts of three days have been uh Jesus was in the tomb. So probably something like forty hours, Jesus was in the tomb. There's no problem here. Three days was an idiom the Jewish the Jews used to talk about the day after tomorrow. Okay, I'll see you in three days, the day after tomorrow. We don't count like that necessarily, but that's how the Jewish people counted. So this makes all the sense in the world. Okay? Um so something that we that we see here is that God is working in the way that that no one expects. Even though he's told them, there is no expectation. And this is often has, how God works. God rarely works in the way that we expect. As if we could dictate to God how he's supposed to act. So, we should come to expect the unexpected. I wrote that down and I thought, how do you do that? <laughs> expect the unexpected. Well, the longer that we live with the Lord, we understand that he's going to do his thing. And we need to follow. And we need to follow. When, it takes a, when he takes a hard right turn, we follow. When he takes a hard left, when he does a U-turn, when we go up a steep mountain, we follow. We expect the unexpected. Listen, when we're surprised, God's not surprised. When we're surprised, God is not surprised. We are not on the same level When we're shocked, when we're dismayed, God is not. God has never been surprised in the history of the universe. He created it. So this is reassuring to us. If God is not surprised, shocked, or dismayed, then none of the related circumstances can ever catch God off guard. He knows. When you are fired from your job... God is not like, Oh no, I knew this was going to happen, but I didn't know it was going to happen this soon. How am I going to get a job? That's not how God, that's not what's happening. So this has a very important application for our reaction to unexpected events. Our God is choreographing history. (laughs) Okay. He is superintending history. And as much as, as we, as we know that and we claim that, can I just suggest that some of the circumstances in your life are not the, the hinges on which history will turn? So listen, God can handle World War I. God can handle World War II. And God can handle the, listen to me, relatively lesser things going on in your life. But at the same time, God has total compassion for those things going on in your life, okay, because Jesus entered into human history and experienced all the same things that we experience, yet without sin. So, so there's there's this there's this two two sides of this. Most of the things that we worry about aren't a big deal, okay. But sometimes our reactions to those things that aren't a big deal are out of proportion, and Jesus understands that. So it's like when you comfort a little child, okay, who has um, lost something. Something extremely important. Something that cost 99 cents 20 years ago. And that we'll forget about tomorrow if we play our cards right. (laughs) But probably the best way to go about that is not to be like, It's not a big deal. Get over it, kid. Of course, we've probably, most of us have done that. But that was not our Hall of Fame moments, okay? So so I want you to see this, that when we are consumed with the unexpected in our lives, God is not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not off the rails. He's right there with us in it. So, Pastor Wong's in prison. That's a pretty big deal. For doing what? For doing this. What you and I are doing right now. That could be very concerning. Did you catch his attitude in the letter? He knows God knows. And he's completely trusting. Now, that does not mean that he's in prison right now. Um, you know, just having the best time of his life. He'd rather not be in there. But he trusts the God who has him in there for whatever he has him in there for. Does that make sense? So notice, notice these women. This is earth-shattering to them. They followed this man for three years. He died. They saw him expire on a Roman cross He's put in a tomb, and they go to the tomb, and he's not there. This is tragic. And the the angels say, he's not here. He's risen. He told you this was going to happen. Now, look how the women respond. Look at verse 8. This is point number three in your notes. Unbelief often happens because of bias. Unbelief often happens because of bias. Look at verse 8. And they remembered his words. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, he did say that. But their, their bias was, death works 100% of the time. Anyone else have that bias? <laughs> they did not expect this. But now they remembered, they were told about it. The picture is clearing up. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They go back to presumably the upper room where all of the followers are gathered and they tell them what happened. Presumably they tell them what happened and then they tell them what the angels told them about what happened. Okay? To explain it. To interpret it. They go back and tell the eleven and the rest. That means the eleven disciples, Judas, um, has already killed himself. He is not a part of the 12s. Tragically, there's only 11. And then all the rest, there are other followers of Jesus and they've all banded together as they wait to figure out what they're going to do in light of this. Now, Jesus had told them in Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer, notice that, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now they remember he said that and that seems to be exactly what happened. In Luke 18, 32 to 33, Jesus talks about being shamefully treated and spit upon. And he even says, after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus already told them this. They remembered. Now, we can kind of come to this and be like, duh, guys, he told you. Straight up. Hello. I just read it multiple times. But verses 8 and 9 are a good reminder for us of the need to not just encounter God's word, or not just read God's word, but to hide, treasure, store up God's word in our hearts, so that we can recall it when the need arises. It's, a, it's embarrassing the, the, the amount of um, Bible that the Christian church in America doesn't know. Um, and, and partially that's not because we, we don't have it to read, it's because we don't put it in our hearts. We don't store it away. We don't treasure it up. We don't count it so important that we will put it away when we need it at another time. When the need arises, and the needs arise daily, don't they? Hourly, sometimes quicker than that. This is why we we need, we must continually be reading the Bible on our own we need to be reading it with family, in community groups, in Bible studies. And we need to be in church on Sunday to hear God's word preached as often as we can. Because we are the women in the story and we just plumb forgot. I know the Bible tells me to be kind. Oops. I forgot. This is why we need to value God's word. We don't need just to, to have it come in one ear and out the other. We need to store it up. So, church, we need to do a better job at this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then this is important. If we see God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament forgetting important things that God in person said to them, then we need to be in God's word in as many ways as we can. Now, notice the response. uh, Well, let's let's look at the the ladies first in verse 10. This is important. Luke kind of holds their names back until the end. But then he he specifically names three of them. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. This is important because... Women were dismissed as eyewitnesses at the time. They couldn't give testimony in a court of law. They were unreliable witnesses, and some, uh, some Jewish teachers of the day said they were no better than little children. So that if a four-year-old saw something, we wouldn't trust what he said, and if a 42-year-old woman saw something, we wouldn't take into consideration what she said either. This is the world they lived in and what they had to deal with. So why is this important? At least two reasons. How kind of Jesus to appear to the ladies first. <laughs> How much of a rebuke was that to his male disciples? How kind of Jesus to do that. And why in the world would Christians make up a story about Jesus rising from the dead and in all four of their gospels have women be the primary witnesses? That's a bad strategy, guys. Really bad strategy. Why would they make that up? I got news for you. It's because they didn't make it up. That would be a terrible strategy unless it actually happened. It would make more sense to have men be the ones... Well, we know the ladies saw it first, but let because we need to write a letter that we need people to believe, we'll just insert the men in there, okay? No, well, we read the rest of the gospel. We certainly aren't going to trust them after what we read in the rest of the gospel. Peter saw him, right. Yeah, no, he didn't. <laughs> Peter didn't see him. Okay, here, here's, the, here's the women who have become the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And then they have their names recorded for all of history here in the scriptures, they tell these words, but in verse eleven, how do how they receive these words? Seem to them an idle tale, a frivolous tale, a sheer fantasy, nonsense. Doctor Luke gives us a medical term, which frequently was used for the, delir- the delirious speech of very sick people. That's how they, the, they received it. The women ran back. They came in. They told them what happened, and the guys were like, uh, <laughs> "Oh boy." Right? They did that. Those ones, they, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. No. Right? They were given the little, no, I don't, okay. Do you need some water? Right, that's, but that's how they received it. They thought this was absolute nonsense. Okay? One uh, Bible dictionary said, this word is used to mean that which is totally devoid of anything worthwhile, idle talk, nonsense, humbug. I thought that was great for Christmas, okay? So, they thought it was humbug. Spirit of Scrooge. Why did they dismiss the words? Because they're women? Probably. But also the news they had was fairly unbelievable, correct? <laughs> so they have a double whammy here. First of all, we don't believe them because they're too emotional. Okay. Like we can't, they can't be trusted. And pff, I come up with a better story, right? That's not, he's dead. We saw him die. Now, let me just say the women were certainly emotional. That. Sunday morning, and they had every right to be. They were absolutely, correctly emotional about the most important thing to be emotional about. That does not discount the eyewitness testimony or the facts of the case. The facts of the case lead to emotion. Notice, the women were at the cross, they were at the burial, they're at the resurrection, they know what they saw. They were eyewitnesses, not like these ninny guys who were hiding somewhere. Okay? Okay? The women saw it. They knew what they saw. But they're dismissed. They did not believe them. The bias against women led the men to not believe the story. The bias against the fact that people don't rise from the dead led them to believe that too. Although, if you'll think about it, Jesus did raise several people from the dead in the presence of these men. Verse 12. But Peter... And always is a good, I mean, it makes it fun, right? What's Peter going to do? Peter rose and ran to the tomb, <laughs> okay? Peter does this a lot, right? He's impetuous. He rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. Remember the, remember the door? He stooped and looked in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Wow, this is an interesting fact from Dr. Luke. If you came to a tomb to rob it, and you came to a tomb that was very... Unprepared. there was not a lot of time because it was Sabbath, the most, the, the most helpful thing for you to steal, the most precious thing for you to steal, are the linen cloths on the body. What does Peter see? He sees the linen cloths. Now, what, ca- what kind of story tells of this? Well, who leaves the linen cloths? Do they un- Why would you unwrap a dead body? Then you've got to deal with limbs and rigor mortis and stuff. Keep the body wrapped and take the body like that. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, what's happening here? Well, Peter didn't know either. And he went home marveling at what happened. Now, marveling doesn't mean he believed. Marveling in the book of, Luke uses this word a lot. Marveling doesn't necessarily mean belief. Um, Marveling is amazement, fear, confusion, curiosity. But it is not necessarily belief. Peter gets back from the tomb and he goes, What is going on? Think about the last few days for Peter. He's confused. He's curious. Maybe a tinge, hopeful, maybe part of him, a little tiny part of him goes, but what if? But he returns marveling, not clear on what has happened. At the end of verse 12, we are meant to be intrigued and a little let down. Like, that's it? And at the end of the sermon, you should be a little let down. That's it? Well, come back in two weeks, in three weeks, and we'll finish it up because most of the implications of the resurrection are in the rest of Luke twenty-four. Luke leaves this part of the story um, vague on purpose, so we want to. We want to. What's happened? We want to. We want to know more, and much of it is reserved for the last few verses, and then also the sequel, which is what you do in a good first movie, right, or first book. You kind of wet people's appetite for the sequel, right? So, so what do we do with With this, because we see doubting people, we see confused people, we see perplexed people, we see frightened people, we see an amazing story, and no doubt some of you have doubts that this is actually true. Of course you do. This is outrageous stuff we're talking about. It's okay to experience doubts and questions as well, and it's okay to voice those. The truth isn't afraid of hard questions. It's okay to say But what about this? Or why doesn't Mark agree with Luke? What's going on here? Let me just cut through some of that and say, ask those questions. Look for the answers. But you don't need all your questions answered. You need your sins forgiven. We're all going to go to our grave with questions. That's what the new heavens and the new earth is for, okay? It's going to be trivia time with Jesus. Okay? You need real hope. Some of your questions can and will be answered, but not all of them. But does this story, does the whole thing have the ring of truth in it? Does it sound like the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Does it help explain perhaps why millions and millions of people today gathered or will gather in virtually every country on the earth to celebrate the risen Lord Jesus? 2,000 years later... We believe that it does. I believe that Dr. Luke found nothing in his interviews to make him doubt the reality of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Luke is not making up a story. He is finding one and relating it to us. We believe in the Bible, in the story of Christianity, in Jesus, in God, because we believe that this is the best explanation for the way things are. This explains reality better than any other worldview. That's why we believe it. That's why Pastor Wong is in prison. Because he believes it's true. Not the best fantasy novel ever written. And the last thing I want to say is that the implication of this passage is that other than God, there is nothing left in the universe to fear. If this story is true, there's nothing in the universe to fear. That doesn't mean you won't experience fear. You will, because you're a sinner and you're fallen. But there literally is nothing to fear. David said in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, let me list the things. I mean, prison, persecution, lying, cheating, horrible death, right? Right? David wasn't, David wasn't like, oh, that's right, I forgot about that. No, David knew all of those things. Paul in Romans 8 said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's not a question. <laughs> that is a statement phrased like a question to make you answer. If God is for us, no one can be against us. We can say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Can you imagine saying that in front of the fiery furnace? (laughs) Just flames everywhere. God can save us. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up or obey your commonest rules. So, remember, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a celebration of Easter. It's the Lord's Day, because on it the Son of God rose from the dead. One of my favorite songs uh, is from an artist named Andrew Peterson. Um, and some of the verses go like this. So it's a whole album about the resurrection. His heart beats. His blood begins to flow. Waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything is changed. Because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through His veins, and His heart beats. Can you imagine what that must have been like on Sunday morning? Jesus was dead; brainwaves stopped, heart stopped beating, and at some point and in some place, it all restarted. (laughs) It began again. He uses these words in the song: "He breathes in; His living lungs expand." The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out, He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar, and his heart beats. I did not read to you the last two paragraphs of Pastor Wong's letter because I want to show you what gives a man the courage to say what he said. He said this Separate me from my wife and children ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will Joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you violated the law of death by rising again from the dead. Lord, we're so grateful for your birth, your life, your obedience, your example, your teaching, your death on a cross, and your resurrection from the dead. Jesus, we know right now, you're pleading for us at the Father's right hand. You are our intercessor. You are our advocate. When Satan comes and points the finger at us, we point our finger at you and say, he took my sin. Father, this morning, you have done us a great service by giving us this text on this day. We think this time of year of the baby born in a manger, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Our minds are boggled by the reality of that, and to have them boggled again today by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is an amazing thing for us. God, help us to take this with us to Living Nativity tonight, to family meals together, to the rest of the Christmas season, that we would appreciate and laugh and enjoy the, the cute part of Christmas, but that we would not forget the reality of Christmas and what it led to. That the empty cross, the empty tomb, was the goal of the manger. Well, thank you for this day as we go. Give us Joy unspeakable. In Jesus' name, amen.